Good afternoon. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. Delighted to have here Nick Clegg. Sir Nick Clegg, um, who is going to talk to us about all kinds of things, but of course about Brexit and Europe. Nick was, of course, Deputy Prime Minister from 2010 to 2015, former leader of the Lib Dems and MP for uh, uh, Sheffield Hallam and is now doing a variety of things. His book, How to Stop Brexit, was voted by parliamentarians, uh, the top book by parliamentarians last year, and uh, widely recommended on the internet, but he's now doing all kinds of things. I'm not normally here to promote other people's um, things on social media, but I gather today you've just launched your first podcast, which is Anger Management with Nick Clegg. Uh, (laughs) First episode, a long conversation with Nigel Farage. Yeah. Um, available on iTunes, I gather. So, as I said, there's a rare, rare promo you will get from me over other people's material, but I that one sounds that. irresistible. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's 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 start. There's an irresistible list of things we can talk about. <laughs> talk about, but let's indeed start with this question, which you threw down last year of, uh, of stopping Brexit. Is that now a lost cause? Oh no, not at all. Not at all. Um, uh, not remotely. That, uh, but I don't think there is any. Uh, way of pursuing a different trajectory towards our future, which doesn't start with uh, MPs in the House of Commons on this so-called meaningful vote towards the end of this year, um, withholding their consent from whatever the government presents to them. So that is a bit of a sort of that is a bit of a sort of gunfight at the OK Corral moment. And uh, I'm obviously no longer in Parliament, so I'm not as close to it as I once was. And things will swirl around and change. The mood will change from day to day, from week to week. But um, I can easily envisage circumstances in which the Labour Party, if unheroically, and at the 59th second of the 11th hour, and with all sorts of alibis and specious six tests and so on, do in the end what opposition parties do, which is oppose the government. Um, And if that were the case, and if you subtract whatever it is, the Kate Hoeys and Frank Fields of this, of this world, you might need to look, look for, what, 15 to 25 Conservative MPs who'd be prepared, which would be a very brave thing for them to do, and in many ways an unlikely thing to do, but not an impossible thing for them to do, to say, actually, on this occasion, we're not going to vote with the government and we're not going to provide our consent to the deal presented to us. Do I think that's the most likely outcome? No. Do I think it is more possible than people think? Yes, I think it is more possible than people think. Um, where you go from there, of course, it becomes all much more opaque and difficult to tell from here on in. But do I think that is, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not a betting man, but I'd put, I don't know, a 20% chance on that happening. It's certainly not 0%. No, it can't be 0 Okay, we've plunged right into the politics, which I wanted to ask you about. Um, let's even, uh, before getting to the OK Corral, which you've described right. in, in uh, October, which is the vote on the uh, withdrawal yep. agreement and the future framework and stuff, let's just look at where we are now. Yep. We have uh, three different uh, kind of exploratory um, moves on the customs union, yep. on, on staying in a customs union mm. uh, with the customs and trade bill and then the uh, withdrawal bill in the Lords. Mm. Um, how serious a threat do you think those are to the government's uh, position? So it's a funny one, this, because... Uh, it's from the government's point of view, since you ask, yeah. it, it, it's up to them really to decide whether they want to turn it into a sort of existential big thing or not. Um, 
uh, and I find that very difficult to, I, I strongly suspect the Whitehall, the sort of civil service response, I'm sure they're planning for this already, would be to say, because it's quite obvious there's almost certainly an inbuilt majority in the House of Commons to vote for you know, one or more of these amendments um, pushing the government to enter into a or the customs arrangement with the EU. And I'm sure there are plenty of people mm. beavering away Whitehall, Whitehall are sort of quietly saying to Liam Fox, well, it actually wouldn't be so bad, really, because you could still clock up all your air miles uh, claiming that you're striking new trade deals and services and we're a service-oriented uh, yeah, economy and really the customs union only goods. applies yeah. to tariffs on yeah. goods and, you know, da, 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 it's actually not that bad. I'm sure that's going on. And so it's a political decision, really, whether the government wants to, in a sense, take it in, it, take it in its stride. And, 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 and all the evidence, of course, for the last several months is that the hardline Brexiteers have surprised everybody with the alacrity with which they've been prepared to see one red line after the next uh, removed and uh, swallow one indignity after the next, because they've developed this, in my view, zany Maoist belief that all that matters is legally leaving on the 29th of March 2019. If they behave consistent with that pattern of behaviour, I think the government and the hardline Brexiteers might surprise us with the sort of flexibility, notwithstanding... In terms of embracing a customs yeah, union. Yeah, they'll say, well, it's been forced upon us and it's all wrong, This, da, 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 but, uh, you know, we can still strike great trade deals as a service-based economy. I mean, I could write the speech from Liam Fox now. 80% of our economy is service. That's where most competitive... Uh, you da, da, may da, yet get called uh, on to, to, to do this, because someone may have to do this. But, 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 but my, point, yeah, but my yeah. point to you, since you asked, what do I think the yeah. government's reaction yeah. is, I think it, it, it's really a political judgment whether they want to try and absorb it and embrace it and sort of smother it. Uh, or whether, or whether the, uh, the hardliners say this is an indignity t sort of too far. Um, and the only other thing I would stress can, about can, this can customs I, union point yeah. is that it, 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 it has many more loose ends to it than I think sometimes people appreciate. The customs union or a customs union is not a full answer to the Northern Irish problem. The, the customs union and our membership of the single market are much more inextricably mm. bound to each other mm. than people sometimes appreciate. So I think even if Parliament were to force that on the government, very quickly the next debate logically would be, well, if you're going to be part of the customs union, if you really want to remove impediments and checks at the border of sanitary standards, phytosanitary standards and all the rest of it, then we should become like Jersey, you know, which is sort of more or less in the single market and the yeah. customs union, but free from other, uh, other constraints. Um, so then, then it'll quite quickly topple into, if it's not Jersey, then it's kind of Norky, uh, a blend of Norway and Turkey, where we're in both in... And then, of course, after that, you inevitably then move to the next bit of the debate, which is, well, if we do that, what on earth is the point of leaving at all? No. And so I don't. I, I, I'm very, very sceptical that this customs union thing can be sort of dealt with as a, in a sort of hermetically sealed way. That's really that's, that's fascinating. I, I, economically, I, 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 could, I could absolutely see the way you're unfolding. I just want to back up a second, though, so that we're absolutely clear what you're saying because you, you tucked into that uh, right at the beginning that you think, uh, and, and you know, many people do make this point that there probably is a majority in the Commons for backing a customs union. Yeah. Um, when do you think that that will come to a head? Is it this summer, or is it in the OK Corral of, of, of the autumn vote? Right, I, I'm really not. You know, I'm not in Parliament. Best place, yeah. place to. I, I, you know, I hear from colleagues in Parliament mm. and elsewhere the same thing as mm. we all read in the papers that the, you yeah. know these these votes which have been passed yeah. in the Lords overnight go back in yeah. one shape or form towards the end of May. Uh, apparently, some of the Conservative MPs yeah. who would be determinant in all of this are saying at this stage. Even if we have sympathy with that amendment, we're going to reserve judgment until the final deal. 
so you know who knows maybe the maybe the government will dodge the bullet towards the end of may on the basis that will be some inverted commas pro remain conservatives who think that it'll be cleaner and fairer to say no we will just we won't we won't we won't play silly buggers now we'll we'll wait to make that final judgment uh, on the so-called meaningful vote on the deal o- oddly enough you might it might surprise you to hear me say this i actually think that is a more logical way of proceeding rather than taking sort of bite-size chunks out of the government on the issue of whether the deal is any good or not, and trying to, I I think, wholly Mm. synthetically sort of parade your pro-European virtues by standing on ceremony about the customs union. Actually, the more logical and indeed more courageous thing to do is to say, no, we'll let the government get on with it, and then we'll make a final judgment on the final deal. Um, But that leaves very little time. For what? Debate, discussion, yeah. anything else? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're absolutely. Yeah. We're, I mean, the, the, the clock is. No, it's, it's just. Oh, oh look, yeah. there is a school of thought. You may have encountered it, um, particularly amongst uh, uh, pro-Remain conservatives, and I've heard this from very senior folk in the government who say, "Look, actually, trying to kind of uh, build this up into a great sort of crescendo uh, uh, around the point of that uh, meaningful vote." is all wrong, the timing's wrong, we basically got to play it long, let the transition period occur, then the transition period won't, won't really ever end, it'll be extended, and then somehow we can sort of inveigle our way back. The reason I think that, and I've said this to a lot of them, including senior members of the government, is to, privately, is to say, look, I think they underestimate what happens, and by the way, the hardline Brexiteers understand this correctly. The moment you legally leave, you walk through a door that you can't, you can't, you can't, it's not a revolving door. You, you, you've walked through the door for good. And once you legally leave a highly legalistic entity such as the European Union, very quickly facts start uh, accumulating. And so I am of the school of thought that if you're going to have or going to offer to the country and Parliament the opportunity to rethink this, that really needs to be done before you legally leave on the 29th of March. There isn't a sort of, there isn't a sort of Anglo-Saxon sort of non-written sort of fudgy sort of gentleman's agreement that you kind of say you're going to leave legally but you de facto don't really I think think that really misunderstands quite how rapidly the paths start diverging Mm. once Mm. you've legally left which is why the the hardliners um you know, they're being perfectly logical. By hardliners, you mean Brexit hardliners? Yeah, Brexit as, hardliners, as opposed to, to you. Yes, yeah. Yeah. opposed to me, exactly. Yeah. So the, the, the bad hardliners as opposed to the good hardliners. Right. Um, <laughs> um, a wholly objective assessment, obviously. Uh, no, no, they're being perfectly logical by saying um, that this, you know, this 11 p.m. moment on the 29th of March is... is I, had a, mm. I had a conversation for the aforementioned podcast mm. called Anger Management with Nick Clegg, um, uh, with Nigel Farage, as you mentioned, and even he says, I don't know whether he said it in the recording or he said it privately, even he said to me, do you know what, Nick, he said, because I was slightly mocking him and saying, you know, so how's this Brexit thing going? You know, we're not going to be paying money and Spanish trawlers from Vigo are still going to be hoovering up great quantities of our fish in Cornish waters and we're going to be abiding by state aids policy, competition policy, data protection. You know, how's it all going? It's going jolly well, isn't it? And he, even he said, do you know what, I've just, I no longer care what the terms are of our departure because in a hundred years' time, all that will matter is that we've legally left and that future parliaments and governments will then be able to completely 
in effect, he implied, rip up any commitments that are made at this stage. And of course, once you take a view that, in it, that nothing matters in 100 years' time, you can, you can, you can justify almost any U-turn and indignity in the short term. And I think that's, that seems to be not illogically where they've now arrived at. So, some of them. Let's just stick with the parliamentary Tom. stuff at, at, at the moment and, um, and focus on this, this autumn question. As you said, there's going to be lots of opportunities for people uh, to get at this. But what do you think the chances are of an amendment successfully coming for, to, to, put for a, um, to push for another referendum? Um, well, it's clearly possible. Uh, look, as you know, ref referendum in this country uh, almost always only ever happen uh, because when, it, when parties, particularly governing parties, are deeply split and when the political class can't make up its own mind, it's almost always an act of political cowardice uh, and, a, and an expression of political constipation in the uh, political classes. And, uh, and I strongly suspect that's exactly the reason why, uh, if, there is a referendum, uh, if there is another referendum uh, amendment, or an amendment on a referendum on the final deal, on the people's vote, um, It'll be because the Labour Party and perhaps parts of the Conservative Party have concluded that it's getting all so, so sticky and so vituperative and the gridlock is becoming so great um, and, the, and the purported deal is looking so unattractive that the best thing to do is to, you know, play it a bit longer and, and, uh, um, and put, you know, a, a deal to the, to the British people. Um, I think, uh, you know... I, I think that, again, it's similar to... I don't, I don't think it's the most likely outcome, but it is more possible than people yeah. anticipate. I, my impression as an outsider to Parliament now is that almost regardless of Jeremy Corbyn's personal views about the European Union, he's not in a position anymore to instruct his whole parliamentary party to go in, along in the lobby with, with Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Liam Fox and others. And by the way, one thing that I can say as someone who was in Parliament for 12 years... The thing that's always understated by commentators and the press and so on is, is, is the emotion uh, and sentiment uh, mm. that, 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 that actually weighs very heavily uh, at moments of great drama in Parliament. I mean, Westminster, is a, in my think, is a rotten place in many respects and needs to be reformed from head to toe. But it we does might, one we thing. We might come on to that. Well, <laughs> yes, well, yeah. that didn't exactly go very well when I tried that. But anyway, um, yeah. but, it, but, it, but it, it, does, it does one thing very well, is that when you have these votes of great importance, it does create this real hothouse atmosphere where you, where you do, and I, I never participated in the 12 years as an MP in any vote which is as important as this one would be, mm. but ones which are just analogous, I don't know, votes of conscience about abortion or about going to war or mm. not or... I remember the votes about 90 days detention without charge. You, you, this sort of, like a sort of invisible dust, this sort of atmosphere does settle on the place. And MPs do, who at the end of the day, I know people think they're not, but they are human beings. They do, there, is, there are these moments where MPs sort of say, wow, what I do now and who I join in that lobby, whether I go that way or that way, I'll have to explain that to my grandkids and I'll have to live with that. My conscience will have to live with that. And I think people really underestimate how that uh, will play um, on people's uh, consciences, and particularly Labour MPs. I just don't believe a, a large number of Labour MPs um, will be able to stomach voting for a Tory Brexit. And it's not actually about arguing about customs union single market, it's just the Tories. They've done it, it was their referendum, they screwed up, they did it, they've designed it. 
What, then Labour's going to vote for it? And I say this with some feeling as someone who was, uh, you know, ripped limb from limb by sort of pious, sanctimonious Labour MP saying, how dare you consort with the devil and go into coalition with the Conservatives? What, are you then going to actually, in many ways, perform the greatest betrayal of internationalist progressive politics in the post-war period by voting for a Tory Brexit? I just don't believe it. I just don't believe it. So I actually really do think it will come down mm. in the sort of sophology of Parliament to to how many Conservative MPs are going to pluck up the courage to do what privately they, they believe to be right. But it's a big ask of them, because particularly those who are still feel they have a political career ahead of them, they know jolly well, uh, for, for those who are retiring, or like Ken Clark and others, it, in a sense it's relatively straightforward, because they're at the end of their political kind of trajectory anyway, but for those who feel that they still want a political career ahead of them, they know jolly well that within two minutes of voting against the government... And, of course, the Daily Mail and others will have been hysterically yelling at them for weeks that this is going to put a communist in number 10 and all the rest of it. Um, they, will, they will know that within two minutes they'll get a text from the, the chair of their local party association saying, well, you're no longer going to be the Conservative Party candidate for XYZ constituency. So it's, it's a big ask of them, but I don't think it's impossible. Are you surprised the polls haven't moved more? No, not remotely. Mm. Not remotely. I, that, I, I, I mean, with the great... Um, genuflection of respect to great sophologists like Peter Kellner, who, who here? was, who was yeah. here. But where are you, Peter? Uh, oh. oh, he's in the other room. Oh, uh, oh. Uh, you, you're talking to him too long. Um, I, I think this whole thing of everyone constantly sort of trying to put their finger on the pulse of, pub, of public opinion and trying to detect minuscule, you know, changes in the in, in the kind of heartbeat of public mm. opinion from one. It's just it's it's what it overlooks is that, is that for the vast majority of people. Mm. This is not the most important thing in their lives. It's, it's one of the great myths in British politics that the obsession, complete obsession, that the political and media elites have had about our membership of the European Union is shared by the vast majority of British people. It's just not the All case. Right. There's a point worth making, making over and over again. Um, at the same time, I mean, and look, economic arguments haven't done very well in this, uh, in we this, in this whole thing. I, yeah, so your point is, is that, that when we have left, people might then... Think they about might, it. they might, but look, it, it, it's... You've um, got every, you know, every economic it, it model is, going, saying that this will be bad. Uh, yeah, but people don't, but people don't change yeah. sentiment. Yeah. They don't feel, at the end of the day, how people vote is much more, it's much more about how they feel than how they think. Mm. And people are not going to change how they feel because of a graph and page two of the Financial Times, alas. Um, <laughs> and, and the vast majority of people perfectly logically say, well, and I met scores of people in, 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 in South West Sheffield when I was, uh, where I was sort of... Um, located in the referendum campaign, who sort of would shrug their shoulders and say, well, we don't quite know why we'd be asked to do this. Mm. Don't really quite know how we should feel. But anyway, I've decided this way or that way. Um, interestingly, after immigration, which did come a lot up a lot on mm. uh, the, the doorstep at the time, the single biggest reason that I heard of, of voters, good, decent people, many people I you know, knew for years in southwest Sheffield, a reason they would give me their local MP for voting for Brexit was because they were fed up with the way people like David Cameron and others in London kept telling that London kept telling Sheffield what to do. So they voted against our membership of a club in Brussels to prove a point against London. Anyway, look, I digress. The point is, it is perfectly normal and rational and to be expected that people in that situation since then have sort of said, well, God, that all got a bit divisive and a bit, you know, 
um, everyone's sort of yelling at each other. They haven't. They don't follow the twists and turns mm. of the negotiations. And it's a very Anglo-Saxon mm. sentiment of, oh, hey ho, better make the best of it. Mm. I mean, better make the best of it. I mean, how, is there is there is there a more British phrase in the in the lexicon of British phraseology? And must, mustn't grumble. Mustn't no, grumble. Yeah, mustn't yeah. grumble. Yeah. Could, <laughs> could be worse. Could be worse. Mustn't grumble. Reach to the digestive exactly. business. All this. And, yeah. and the could be but, worse. Mustn't grumble. Sentiment yeah. is. It, it's very, it's deep in our nature, and it's a perfectly logical response to people who were invited, many of whom who weren't particularly hot under the collar, one way or the other, were invited to vote mm. on the subject then. Does that mean they might change in the future? Yes. But I, by the way, yeah. why I think this is worth emphasising is, and I say this privately as well as publicly to MPs, there are far too many MPs around who are waiting for public opinion mm. to mysteriously, mm. of its own volition, change. And one of the one of the real symptoms of how this referendum has neutered British politics is that is that politicians who aren't just there to reflect opinion, they're also there to surely lead to try and lead opinion and make a case, now talk about public opinion like you or I would talk about the weather. Oh, it's sunny today. Might be a few rainstorms on th on Tuesday. Might change on Thursday. As if we have nothing to do with it. But if the whole political class just sort of stands back and waits for something else by osmosis to happen. I'll tell you what, it's not going to happen. It, you know, why should it happen? Um, it might happen under the duress of a big major economic... Well, it economic might happen when we've left. Uh, it might have it left, and if there was some major yeah. economic kind of cataclysm between now and then. But I don't think MPs should believe that, that public opinion is going to shift in a way to make their job any easier by the autumn. It's really important that people have got to get away from thinking that somehow, buried within the graphs of opinion pollsters, there's an answer to how they should vote mm. on this meaningful deal. At the end of the day, it's a good old-fashioned case of making a judgment and being brave enough to do what mm. you think is right, not do what you think might be permissible by the vagaries of public opinion at that mm. point. And mm. I, I, just, I just think we should just sort of stop waiting for this to suddenly change. All right. Let's, let's leave Parliament, re reluctantly, because it is a, it's an interesting question, but we've we dive straight into that. Um, and just, uh, you spent five years in the European Commission and part of that in Liam Britton's trade team. Um, what advice would you give the UK trade negotiators now in terms of their deal, the deal trying to, that Britain is trying to get with the EU? Um, on trade or just generally, you mean? Mainly trade. Um, well, <laughs> it, the, the, the problem is you've got people who are running this, the politicians, who I think um, have such a fundamental uh, and fantastical uh, misunderstanding of how trade works. So they obsess about tariffs rather than non-tariff barriers, goods rather than services, but much more egregiously than that, they don't seem to understand that the single biggest determinant for why two economies trade with each other, notwithstanding all the advances in globalisation and technology and so on, remains good old-fashioned geography. Where you are located tectonically and ge geologically has a bigger influence on who you trade with than any other factor. And unfortunately, uh, much though I'm sure he'd like to, Liam Fox can't attach us to a tugboat and drag us across the Atlantic or over to the Antipodes, we are, we are geologically condemned to be a European There is a reason why we trade more with Little Island of whatever it is, four and a half million people, than we do with both India and China combined. There is a reason why Mexico and Canada trade more with America than we ever will, because they're next to them. Um, and this idea that, 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 and of course you see it a lot uh, this week with the Commonwealth and so on, that you can replace 
the intensity of trade that you have with your nearest geographical neighbours, with this kind of far-flung approach, this sort of gumbo sort of approach to, uh, uh, to, to trade policy, I think is a complete fantasy. And as long as the politicians stick with that fantasy, the negotiators, it seems to me, are always going to be sent into bat um, on a pretty sticky wicket because you, they're just talking the wrong language. And, and the interesting thing I find as a sort of ex-politician is that the party that did most, in many respects, over the last hundred years to promote the cause of free trade doesn't seem to understand what drives okay. trade. And okay. crucially, the party that, yep. that created the most perfect example of borderless trade, the single market, doesn't seem to understand what the single market is. And so I think as long okay, as you so you've got that, a long list of all the stuff they don't understand. But I was asking you, what advice would you give them in trying to do a deal with the EU? Well, you have to persuade your political masters to get off this. You, you, can't, you can't negotiate. At the end of the day, negotiators, they, are, they have parameters set for them by their political masters. And the civil servants amongst you know that better than anybody else here. And... And it doesn't matter how diligent or intelligent or thoughtful you are as a, as, a, as, a, as a negotiator and as a technician, as a civil servant. If you are asked to pursue a trade agenda which doesn't conform to the realities of the, the, the real world. And so that's why I, I sense, I sense, and I can't stress enough, I sense um, that the kind of more thoughtful folk um, in Whitehall, not the politicians, the civil servants, are just desperately trying to play this long. Because they're just hoping over time you know, the, 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 there'll be greater alignment between what the politicians believe is possible and what they believe to be deliverable um, as, uh, uh, as negotiators. Um, it's clear, equally clear to me, that if you listen to Barnier and others, and I've spoken to them about this, the EU would like nothing more than a signal, eventually, from the United Kingdom, that the UK would settle, you know, in a sort of second-best way uh, for a kind of EFTA-style mm. relationship. Because they, you know, that they they can compute that. They, you know, they've done it before. They can. They've got that model. They've got that model they, they the off-the-shelf thing and so on. I, I think I think all this business about regulatory divergence and I, I personally think it's, it's just, just too. For, you know, to use your phrase, too Anglo-Saxon for them. Too. It's. It, I mean, well, it's just. It's. You just have to. I mean, just think about it. Too, it is so complicated. It's so what you have: different sector, different mm. products, mm. different standards, different licensing arrangements, different laws, different taxes, different levies. Service and, 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 and goods have become increasingly sort of intertwined with each other. And what, then you're going to have this great patchwork of things where you kind of have rival claims about which one you do want to align and not, and what if you want to disalign later or realign later. And then you have to have a separate thing, not called the Court of Justice, but basically doing the same thing. And then you have to have a series of sanctions where the EU can basically remove market access in other unrelated areas to compensate for... Uh, trickery or jiggery pokery and others it's it's a nonsense it's a nonsense it will not it's just too the, 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 you know beyond everything else the the idea that the eu leaders have got the bandwidth to spend a huge amount of time in order to even if it was feasible which i don't believe it to be of course it's feasible on a piece of paper but to be practically feasible they don't They've got big fish to fry. Turkey, North Africa, the Middle East, Russia, the Eurozone. This standoff between, Russia, between France and Germany is immeasurably more important to the long-term existential future of the European Union than the terms of our Brexit exit. So I just think it's... I, I'm afraid, I personally think, all well, these ever more arcane and elaborate schemes cooked up in London are increasingly becoming a, a, an expression of the sort of peculiar... 
sort of policy narcissism with which we talk about Brexit is if all we need to do is agree amongst ourselves and then somehow Johnny Foreigner in the end will sign up. Johnny Foreigner's got plenty of other things to be doing, you know, and, it, it, and I, so I think, so for all of those reasons, I, I, I kind of think maybe, maybe, um, maybe this, the indignity of this transition period um, and, and in effect having nothing more than an outline approach presented to Parliament towards the end of the year is perhaps the only deliverable and reasonable thing to do at the moment so that you hope that uh, a more practicable way forward can, uh, can prevail in the long run. But just, just on, the, on that outline thing... On the, I, out, the outline agreement. Which, which will come, you know... Yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound um, too sort of dismissive of some you know, folk in Parliament and elsewhere, but if I was... If I was David Davis, uh, if I was Theresa May, the more you could basically present to Parliament a deal which says, and at the heart of it will be a trade deal, which would be a Canada-style free trade agreement. You can see why, because it's got the word Canada in it. And Justin Trudeau is sexy, and they like the Queen. <laughs> and they speak English, and they're in the Commonwealth, and Some, it's got someone, the word someone. free in it, and free is good, and agreements. I, 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 I don't want to sound too dismissive, but do not underestimate how much the sort of packaging of this, of the outline thing, mm. will allow the government to just get away with not really um, confronting itself or being confronted with the really, really invidious choices that these, that these, um, uh, that these words actually represent. Because the, the, the distance that we will travel as an economy, as a country, from being a fully integrated member of the world's largest single market to the Canada-style free trade agreement, if that's where they want to go, I mean, it's not just going from one league to the next. I mean, it's going several, several divisions mm, down yeah. um, in terms of uh, economic interdependence with our nearest um, neighbours. Um, but I think they'll have a great incentive to, to do it in that outline way, precisely not to frighten the horses before the meaningful vote mm. takes place. Let me just ask you a couple of other things before we go to questions. I think there's going to be quite a lot of questions, including in the other room. Um, chances of a new centrist party here. Look, there are, I think there are over 30 new parties which have either registered or been talked about over the last few months. And it, uh, I remain of the view that, at, at the moment at least, uh, th all of these, you know, it's, there are a new party here and this party there and a bunch of London-based entrepreneurs amassing 50 million here and there. Uh, at the moment, I think they are more symptoms of the malaise in British politics than answers to them, mm. is, my, is my hunch. Um, and for all the reasons I don't need to rehearse here, uh, it is extraordinarily difficult to bust open the duopoly in British politics. Boy, do I know it. Um, and the whole thing is so, so carefully calibrated, a.k.a. rigged, in order to uh, keep it that way. And so I, I, think it's, I think it's significant that so many people are kind of almost wanting to imagine that it's possible for some party to emerge out of the sort of thin blue sky and reinvent British politics. It's a lot, lot more difficult than that. I remain of the view that the biggest fault line in British politics, which could lead to significant realignment and possibly new parties and so on, it lies within the Labour Party. Um, I, I, think if, I think there is clearly you can, you can a... See, you can see it splitting. I don't know, you need to ask them. But there is clearly a constituency of MPs in the Labour mm. Party who, who in the heart of hearts don't think Jeremy Corbyn should be Prime Minister. I mean, they, 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 that, you know, that, that is a pretty extreme position to find yourself in. They just ideologically, fundamentally disagree with this whole worldview. And um, they clearly are wrestling with, do you stick with it and try and save the Labour Party from within? Or do you 
come to the conclusion, which as an outsider I think is the obvious conclusion, that it would take another 20 years to reclaim the, reclaim the Labour Party for sort of moderate social democratic uh, sentiment, and that therefore it would be much better and braver, though of course riskier, to, to, to strike out on their own. As long as they strike out in a, in a, in a, in a sort of, with a real clean break, the worst thing for them to do would be to create some new Labour Party ginger group, or call it the new, new, new Labour Party, or the nice, new, cuddly, reformist Labour Party, because that will, that will fail instantly, and it'll just be part of the internecine spat within the Labour Party. If they really were, however, a, a, a significant body of men and women from the Labour Party saying, we don't recognise the Labour Party as it now has become, we are kind of centrist, left of centre people, we believe in political reform, we believe in a new rapprochement with Europe, we believe in a competitive economy but a sort of compassionate approach to welfare and decent public service and so on and so forth. Uh, if, they, if they do so with a clear ambition to reach out to Liberal Conservatives, to Liberal Democrats and others, that I think could stand a chance, no guarantee, but could stand a chance. I, I think that is a more, uh, I find that easier to imagine than I do a Some well-funded entity new, of yeah. people no one has ever heard of before suddenly emerging on the on the ballot mm. paper and, and, mm. and sweeping the board. I mm. might do anything can happen these days, but I doubt it. But what do you think Jeremy Corbyn represents? Is it an, an, um, you know, nostalgia? A reje nostalgia. A reje a no, it's nostalgia. No. It's a, it's, so it's you a don't see it as a rejection of thirty years of, of kind of consensus around the no. I see. It, I see it as an profoundly conservative, small c conservative mm. view of life. Um, it's it's you know it's it's very much hang hankering. For a for a for a, um, a calmer, um, quieter, nicer sort of yesteryear, uh, and uh, where you don't need to worry too much about globalisation, where you can spend pots of money and all be apparently generated from money from the top five percent, who mysteriously will be merrily fleeced uh, um, uh, at will. Um, uh, deeply conservative, by the way, on political reform. Literally nothing to say. Nothing to say. The so-called radical, progressive folk in the Labour Party have. Nothing to say on how power works in our system. I mean, how conservative can you get? Uh, not much to say on issues like civil liberties and so on. The European Union clearly regards it as a rich man's club, doesn't like competition policy, state aid policy. So I think the curious thing about Corbyn is how sort of backward looking he is. It's a sort of a, it's a sepia tinted socialism. Um, I totally, of course, I understand emotionally why the, the refrain against austerity after eight, nine long years of all this endless, remorseless, God, cuts, 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 and squeeze on people's uh, take-home pay. I totally understand why it's nice to be invited by a sort of softly spoken uh, character like Jeremy Corbyn to sort of, it's the, it's the sort of political equivalent of being invited to take a nice long hot bath and have a cup of tea, you know. No more difficult choices, all will be well, we can spend lots of money. You know. Of course I understand, everyone goes, oh, isn't that, wouldn't that be nice? I totally understand why young people particularly rally to that. But ideologically, it's, 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 it, what is interesting about it is it's, it's a curiously past, some backward-looking um, um, vision. And even more curiously, it's actually not very successful. I mean, not, the, the remarkable thing in, in, in British politics is how badly Labour's doing. I mean, a decent opposition party would have crucified this government months ago. They'd be 20% ahead in the polls. It is extraordinary to me that in, in, you know, in many polls now, there's a suggestion that Conservatives are marginally ahead of Labour. After what mm. this government has done to this country... Uh, I mean, oh, I, so I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't kind of... I don't, as you can hear, I don't have much time for what I think is a very nostalgic ideological view. And I don't think, despite all the, the bubble-type, sort of Glastonbury-type 
hype that there is around Corbyn, I think if you just coolly look at what the Labour Party's doing, it's performing very badly. Yeah. Why are the Lib Dems doing so badly? Well, I think there are a number of, I don't know, is the, is the, is the short answer. Um, it's, 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 as I said earlier, it's incredibly tough. When, when the two large battalions are neck and neck, you get, you know, what, in the sort of political jargon, you get this remorseless squeeze on everybody else. Everybody else gets squeezed out, so that's happening. When you are so small, because we obviously were so radically reduced in size in the 2015 general election, I think there is a quite a intuitive sentiment amongst many voters, which is, oh, well, you know, what's the sort of point? I mean, we always had that question, even when we had 50, 60 MP. So, you know, that obviously is... is uh, I personally think, and I don't, I don't want to say anything sort of... Um, untoward or disloyal about my two successors, Tim Farron and Evans Cable, I think, I think the 2017 general election was a missed opportunity because I think to immediately start talking about another referendum, mm. when, as I described earlier, lots and lots of voters are going, oh, please don't ask us to vote again. I mean, most voters didn't even want to vote in the snap election, yet let be invited to... Timing is everything in politics, and I think it was premature to make to put that in the sort of shop front window mm. uh, in mm. the way... I can understand why Tim Farron did it, did it uh, and Vince has done it since, but I, I can equally understand why it didn't really resonate. It might mm. well come yeah, into its own as, a, re as yeah. a refrain, but I, I, it was... Um, I mean, the Lib Dems are exceptionally good um, at being... Uh, prematurely uh, right, um, <laughs> but not reaping any popularity for it. Um, we did it on the Iraq war, we yeah. did it on there, we did it on the banking crisis, we did it we did it in the coalition, we did it now in Europe. But I'm afraid what we need to work out as Lib Dems is how you can be right and popular at the same time. Um, <laughs> that we haven't quite worked out yet. Thank you. Just one final thing on the Windrush uh, to bring us right, right up to date. Um, uh, um, you were chair of the uh, Home Affairs uh, Cabinet Committee, which looks at a lot of domestic policy. Uh, maybe you can give us some insight into how all this blew up in the way it did. Uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, not that I remember all the twists and turns. I do remember, I mean, this issue of immigration, as you can imagine. I mean, it was a constant, constant energy-sapping um, and at times highly acrimonious issue within the coalition a government and of course I found myself chained to a party that um, in my view right from the outset was pursuing stupid policy and nasty politics um, stupid policy because they got obsessed with this with targets yeah and but it's very important I mean, look, it's all in the mist, all lost in the midst of time now but for people like me of course I punctiliously still point out that 100,000 target was never a government target I deleted it from the coalition agreement I deleted it it was never ever a government target. I couldn't stop David Cameron and Theresa May go around and giving speeches saying we believe as Conservatives. And of course civil servants in the Home Office then respond to what the Home Secretary said. And then they had this... The, the policy was just so weird. So they got obsessed with this target, which was... was the 100,000. The net yeah. target. I, mean, you know, I, don't, yeah. I hope I don't need to repeat to an audience like this why it makes no sense. They would then do these kooky things like keep students into the net numbers. There's no evidence the British public are up in arms about the fact that we've got lots of students coming from elsewhere to this mm. country. And then they, here's the weird thing. They wouldn't do the things that would actually help. So I spent, here's the curious thing, I spent a lot of time in getting Theresa May to come to my office and constantly pressuring her to reintroduce exit checks, which had been removed by previous governments. Why? 
because the single biggest problem in the British immigration system is people coming here legally under temporary visas and then overstaying their visa, but we didn't have the administrative capacity to identify who they were, because we don't check people as they leave. And the weird thing was, for reasons I can't understand, she and her, this really odd collection of rather immature and very overexcitable special advisors she had around her, dragged their feet on doing what would make a difference, the exit checks, and spent all their time doing these really silly, pernicious things, which I constantly had to stop, like, you know, when I, this go-home vans thing. I didn't know that was going to happen. I suddenly woke up one morning, so I put a stop to that. I remember they, at one point, they even proposed extraordinary things, like um, there was a serious pro proposal that children of folk who, of parents who have sort of uncertain paperwork, as far as their status here is concerned, would not be allowed admission into British schools. It was just crazy kooky stuff. Um, um, and then, you know, anyway, then, then of course what happens is that the, the, the kind of administrative culture responds to that, to that kind of political tone mm. which was, mm. which was uh, struck by, uh, uh, by Theresa May. And then, and then of course you've now got, I mean, uh, let me just get this off my chest. In the many, many years of me witnessing and dare I say it being the, uh, the, 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 the subject of and the object of the vituperation and downright craven hypocrisy of the British right-wing press in this country, I have really, even this has now taken my breath away, the breathtaking hypocrisy of unaccountable, unelected, secretive, rich millionaires like Paul Dacre, who edits the Daily Mail, who never has to account for himself at all, who probably single-handedly is more responsible than anyone else in this country for creating this vituperative climate which led to the victimisation of the uh, Windrush generation, and he now dares to shed crocodile tears for those same people, and then go after Amber Rudd, when clearly, if she took the rap for this, by the way, because this odious figure in the Daily Mail doesn't like her, and by the way, he doesn't like her because she didn't do what he wanted her to do on this blue passport business, the Delarue thing, and she's too pro-European. It would be a scandal, because if there's anybody who's responsible, directly responsible for what's happening now between Amber Rudd and Theresa May, it's Theresa May, not Amber Rudd. So, you know, until the British political class, and of course this is easier for me to say now that I'm not in the thick of it anymore. Much easier. But much easier. <laughs> well, to be fair, I did say it, but not with much success before. Um, uh, the, until the British class, class you know, fails to get up off its knees, as far as these kind of bullying, vile, profoundly hypocritical right-wing newspapers are concerned, we will continue to stumble from one unjust, inhumane and, in policy terms, illogical approach to immigration to the next. And you know, it's really, there's one thing I hope the next generation of politicians will learn, we've got to stop this constant craven genuflection to these unaccountable old men, which is what they are, most of them, old angry men, many of them don't even live or pay taxes in this country, who've been playing kind of, being playing puppet masters of British politics for far, far too long, most especially on things like immigration. Thank you. Let's have some questions. Here. Thanks. Um, ben Glaze from the Daily Mirror. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, you You're might, not an angry old man, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> um, you might have seen Lord Kerslake's comments last night about yeah. um, the Home Office, and he said that some ministers in the coalition government th uh, compared it to the Nazis. Um, he didn't name any ministers. I was wondering if you were one of those ministers um, and what you thought of the Home Office at that time, if you could just expand on some of the points you've just made. No, I, d I don't know of anybody... And I, I, I doubt anybody thought that Whitehall between 2002 and 2015 was like Hitler's Germany in the 1930s. I, I find that a, 
as unilluminating as I find it striking to make that claim, and I, I certainly didn't hear anyone say. And it's a it's a bit of a silly thing to say, I think. Um, uh, but what did I feel? I've been very clear. What I what I felt. I, I mean, I spent an inordinate amount of my time constantly trying to rein in the worst excesses of what uh, the Conservatives wanted to do on immigration. I've given you some of the examples of the things that um, I sort of stopped them from doing. Um, uh, and I, you know, and it was it was an endless source of frustration for me that we had in government a Home Secretary and a Prime Minister who, as I say, were driven by bad, downright stupid policy and really nasty politics, um, and, and and that just sort of persisted. And um, look, I, I don't want to be sort of naive about this. F firstly, it, it is absolutely true, and it is quite right to say that the British political elite and community and establishment was too slow in identifying many, many years ago growing public concern about the administration of our borders and our immigration. You know, I'm not, so I'm not, I've been in politics long enough, close to 20 years in elected politics, to know that immigration, a lot of people are very sort of concerned about. So that's the first point. And the second point is that given that at the time the Conservative Party, their kind of, how can I put it, their the vested interests in the, in the, in the uh, right-wing press were understandably very important to them and were, were virtually unhinged on the subject. But, but what was so, so frustrating was that I was constantly trying to point out to them there were things that we could do and could have done which made a which would have made a material difference. Exit checks is probably the best example. And yet they kept kind of uh, like a sort of shopping trolley that sort of moves constantly to the right of its own accord. Um, they kept in instead resorting to these glib, silly, unproven and nasty sort of headline grabbing kind of gimmicks. Um, and that does create, I'm afraid, the administrative climate in which it doesn't surprise me at all that someone somewhere way down the kind of food chain in Whitehall said, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll get rid of these landing card documents or, or we won't take on good faith what someone from the Wind, Wind, Windrush generation is saying to us. Not because of a particular piece of law or a particular kind of policy, but because that's the climate which they have been encouraged to operate in by their political masters. And that clearly, clearly happened. And, and it, it would be a scandal if Amber Rudd uh, is the person who ends up taking the rap for this rather than, rather than others, because you can't remotely claim that this was somehow I invented by her or, or since she arrived at the Home Office. Thanks. Um, behind in yeah, that one. If people in the next door room want to ask questions, come through the door and wave. Hi, uh, Nick King, former special advisor, hopefully not an immature one. Um, in the early years of the coalition, there was a referendum on AV. Mm. Um, if that referendum had been won by your side, say 52 to 48, and then Conservative and Labour MPs had decided to look into their heart and vote against it, uh, you'd quite rightly have play called foul on that. Why is the Brexit vote any different? Oh, because, because when people voted on the AV referendum, you knew exactly what you were voting for. It was a very, very simple proposition. It was a very simple description that you have this voting system, you put your tick there, under the other one, you, put your rank, you, you rank people in order of preference. That's it. That's the only change. There was no secret and certainly no doubt or ambiguity about what was being proposed. Why this referendum is so utterly different on Europe was that there was no agreed manifesto from the Brexiteers. They still don't agree what they mean. Everyone was left in the dark about what would happen next. There are still rival interpretations of what 
Brexit really meant. There was a litany, as you know, of wholly false and fictional claims, utopian claims made about what would happen, 350 million quid for the NHS every week, uh, VAT cuts, smaller class sizes, uh, hermetically sealed borders and so on and so forth. And, and by the way, it's worth pointing out that this is not some sort of, you know, sour grapes uh, response from folk like me. The, f the people who first advocated a two-step process in which the people are in charge at the beginning of the process and at the end were David Davis and John Redwood and many others. They've written long essays about how the most democratic thing to do is to first have a referendum on principle, do you want to leave, yes or no, and then when you've worked out what that means in practice, you put it to the people again. You, you could, I mean, they've probably deleted it from their websites now, but I certainly have it, kept it somewhere if you want to, uh, if you, if you, uh, if you uh, need the, the full text. So it's not, a, it's not some sort of newfangled um, proposition that when you make such an enormous change, such a sort of screeching uh, a change in the trajectory of the country, which affects almost every single aspect of pol public policy, which has constitutional implications, economic implications, cultural implications, generational implications, that you make sure that you do it methodically and you put the British people in charge all the time. The AV referendum was a, was a much, much more, and in that sense, lent itself much more readily to a referendum, because it was a very simple yay or nay proposition to a very simple one-off change, which everyone could, if they chose to, understand. So I think there are huge differences. Thanks. All right, over here at the side. Thank you. I'm Ben Alexander. It's been quite a busy week at the IFG. Uh, on Monday, we had Dominic Grieve, um, who expressed a view that the amendment that he put forward, as it currently stands, would prevent the government from effectively taking a, adopting a take it or leave it approach yep. if Parliament rejected um, the deal. Um, thank Keir you Starmer, your tweet on that. Yeah, Keir Starmer was here yesterday, and obviously he's got an amendment, Labour have an amendment, which actually wants to strengthen that yep. position. Yep. And then there's the added element to this, which is some of the things the amendments MPs could make could actually require the acquiescence of the European Union to yep. have any effect. So my question is, do you think the government can carry on in a modified way or the way it says it's going to in the event of a sort of substantial repudiation by Parliament of, it, of its deal? Yep. Or do you think that necessarily throws everything up in the air? So I, I, it's a very important point, this, and, I, and um, uh, one of the things I've been um, doing over the last several weeks and months is uh, sort of somewhat erratically, but anyway, trying to get round to most of the key capitals in other European Union member states, particularly uh, where I know the Prime Ministers or the President or the Vice President, you know, the people who are still in government, and talking to them about this very issue. Because, of course, what they don't hear from government ministers, and actually don't really hear from the Labour front bench very much either, is the possibility, as I say, I don't want to overstate it, I don't want to over-egg it, but the possibility that they, the EU27, will be faced with a country this winter in a state of, in effect, constitutional and political gridlock, in which the legislative legislature and the executive will be... Um, uh, at, at loggerheads. And um, what I have discovered is that um, in the event that there is that sort of constitutional paralysis here, or indeed in the event that uh, the cookie crumbles in a way which leads to a, a move towards a, a people's vote, uh, another plebiscite on the, on the final deal, um, I am very, very assured, and of course you can find some folk, particularly in the Benelux countries, part of the 
particularly in the sort of some of the parts of the, the French system who kind of slightly sort of almost now want us to bugger off and sort of some of them even don't think we should have been in there in the first place. And so, you know, there, there, of course you can find that and the journalists will be able to find someone to say that. But actually the vast, vast majority of sort of grown-ups in the kind of EU27 system recognise that if the United Kingdom finds itself in that invidious position, that they need to then give the United Kingdom more time. In fact, there was a debate about this in the European Parliament yesterday. Um, and I think they would readily do so. There might be a little bit of paperwork, they might need to receive a letter from someone, but they would readily do so. You know, they, this, this idea, which of course is what the government says, and it's very good that, the, that you have pointed out this is nonsense, this idea that there is a sort of biblical momentum towards the 29th of March 2019, which is immutable, and that you know, if, if, if Parliament withholds its consent, then we will just fall out and crash out of the European without it, is absolute nonsense. The one caveat I would make is that whilst I think there is at least privately now, a great deal of understanding and generosity and potential flexibility on that timetable uh, in order to allow the, the, the constitutional and political wheels to turn in, in, uh, in, in Britain um, in the event that there is this, uh, this standoff between Parliament and, and uh, the government this winter, where there is much less sympathy is the idea that the government goes back to the EU27 and says, oh, we've, got a f we've had a sort of flea in our ear from, from MPs, we want to tweak this or tweak that. There's very, very little patience with that, and there's very unambiguous messages from some very, very, very senior power brokers in the EU saying, listen, that we're not going to do. We're not going to reopen it and sort of tweak this or tweak that a little bit more, a little bit, little bit, you know, little bit more. So you, really, you think there's no appetite there in, in the EU for, for engage if, you know, if... Um for engaging in any tweaks well, that Parliament uh, might want to Let make. me be uh, quite clear with you. It is, they have every incentive to communicate that message, both privately and publicly, and who knows, maybe in extreme circumstances, if it really is just a tiny little tweak, you, you know, so I'm not... But their instinct is, listen, once we do this deal with you, kind of, that's it. We're not going to constantly, you know, tweak it here and tweak it there. And you can see why. They, 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 can't, they can't negotiate in good faith if they feel that, if they, if they feel that you know, Britain's going to constantly come back for more. So I'm very sceptical, and I've heard this from some MPs, about, oh, well, we could send the government back to the negotiating table to get a better mm. deal. You hear this a lot from the Labour front bench. I'm very sceptical of that. Having said that, I am much, much more uh, confident than many other people are that in the event that Parliament says yet to the government, the EU27 will be quite generous in trying to give us time to kind of sort ourselves out. Parliament's not yet speaking in Russian. Thank you. Uh, John Grace from The Guardian. Um, Nick, uh, Nick Timothy has written today that Theresa May was on holiday when the go-home vans were sent round in 2013. Uh, is that how you remember it? Um, <laughs> Uh, you were in government at the time. I have time. no idea what her holiday plans were, John. <laughs> How do I know when she was on holiday? No, well, all, well, I, all I remember is this Is thing. it an excuse if she was? Or should she be responsible for what happened on, in her own department? Of course, you're a Secretary of State for a department. You're responsible for what happens in the department, whether you're on holiday or not. Okay, thank you. Um, um, sorry, in the doorway. And I'm going to take two together because we're coming right to the end. Thank 
Thanks. Um, Majid Neki, I'm a civil servant in the Cross uh, Whitehall um, Cities and Local Growth Unit that works on economic growth and decentralisation. Um, interested in what you were saying about uh, reflections from the doorstep in Sheffield during the referendum campaign and people talking about resentment about London telling Sheffield what to do and that being a factor in, in actually voting leave for some people. Um, do you have any reflections during your time in government or, or subsequently on the kind of uh, local economic growth and decentralisation and devolution agenda that's emerged over the last sort of um, seven to eight years? and the role that that might be able to play in actually addressing some of these feelings of economic disempowerment in the country. Let me take that one, then I'll come, to the, I'll come right to the back at the end. Um, well, that's a huge subject uh, all unto itself, uh, but in sort of headline terms, we obviously have one of the most ludicrously over-centralised systems of government in England, um, in the Western world. There have been a very sort of fitful uh, moves towards greater decentralization, some of which I was closely associated with. I initiated the city deals, though George Osborne then successfully got all the credit for it later. Anyway, never mind. I'm not bitter. Um, uh, um, mayoral politics obviously has had a bit of a kind of new lease of life, at least in parts of the country and so on and so forth. And there's a general kind of rhetorical consensus now amongst all politicians that we need to devolve more and so on. Um, my own view is two things. Firstly, at the end of the day, if you want to be serious about decentralisation, particularly in terms of economic development, you have to, you have to uh, loosen the clammy grip of the Treasury on the way that our fiscal system works. As long as you have a highly centralised fiscal system, you're always going to bump up against real limits to how much you can meaningfully decentralise to local communities. And you know, until we kind of get over this idea that every single penny raised and penny spent has to be determined in the bowels of the, the Treasury. I think there are kind of quite hard limits to how much you can do uh, in terms of decentralization. That's the first point. And the second point is, um, uh, I'm not, interestingly, you might think, because, some, because I'm constantly accused of thinking that everything that emanates from the European Union is great. I'm not a great fan of structural funds. I think they're quite a crude tool. I don't bluntly understand why structural funds are being dished out in the United Kingdom and Holland and Denmark and other net donors to the European Union budget. And I never ever regarded the existence of the structural funds as being particularly essential to or, or germane to you know, what it means to be part of the European Union club. Um, and so oddly enough, if we, if we are to leave, um, there is a opportunity for people like you in Whitehall to, I mean, it's a very rare opportunity to start, in a sense, with a tabula rasa of what you do when you're, not, when you're no longer having to jump through the hoops of structural funds. Um, obviously, a lot of the debate, will, you know, you'll have the Andy Burnhams and the, 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 the mayors all around the country saying, we want, this, we want to guarantee we're going to have the same amount from structural funds as we would under Objective 2B and 5, or whatever these names and numbers are and so on. And particularly in Wales and in the southwest, where Objective 1 monies are still dispersed. And so that, that's a sort of, that's a sort of how, how big the cake is. But there's a really interesting debate to be had about whether the way in which that money is then spent and the criteria that are developed could be completely, really radically decentralised. Um, and if I were you, dare I make a suggestion, um, with absolutely no authority to do so, um, I would start at the really radical end. I would say to your ministerial colleagues, this is one of those rare, rare bits in the Brexit kind of jigsaw where you, can, where, you can, where you can reinvent stuff in a, in a inverted commas, progressive way. And uh, so I, I would really push the boat out to see whether you could uh, persuade your political masters to. But, as I say, even if you do that on the spending side, on what replaces structural funds, 
as long as the tax system is as heavily centralised as it is, there's always going to be a natural barrier to how decentralised we become as a country. That is a really interesting and important point. Um, last question. I'm really sorry. Right, right at the back. Very patient. Thanks. Hi, Mark Darcy, uh, BBC. Um, suppose you get your wish and the country decides, well, we don't really want to do Brexit after all. What's the price at the EU end of that equation? Do they want you know, the Thatcher rebate, what's left of it, back? Do the Spanish want Gibraltar? Do the Greeks want the Parthenon marbles? Whatever. Uh, what price would we pay for this exercise, even if we decided to stay? Well, the first thing I would say is one of the many reasons why people like me think it is essential to bring this to a head before the 29th of March 2019, and why people like Nigel Farage and Michael Gove and Boris Johnson are so keen that it shouldn't be brought to a head, is precisely because if you can reopen this question or keep it alive before we legally leave, then we still legally are entitled to all the opt-outs and the rebates and all the other uh, wrinkles and privileges of our of our of our dare I say it, cake and eat it membership of the European Union. Um, and I think it's essential, for, never mind for policy reasons, for political reasons, to hold on to those. I think it'd be incredibly difficult to make the case, uh, I'm sure you technically could, but politically very, case, very difficult to make the case for a sort of rapprochement of our, of our, of our relationship with the European Union uh, if, uh, if the rebate was to be um, sort of removed at the same time. So that's point one. Point two, and I should have emphasised this actually, one of the reasons why I don't sort of, people like me don't sort of, perhaps I'm sure many people would prefer to sort of just go away quietly and gracefully or disgracefully just hide under a rock somewhere and never say anything publicly again is because what has incensed me, absolutely incensed me, is that the winning side in the referendum did something which is an extraordinary thing to do in a mature democracy. They basically said, in the, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the referendum, it doesn't matter, we don't care what 48% of the voting public think. We don't care what 16.1 million people think. We are going to impose our own very sort of partial, one-eyed in interpretation on this very, very finely balanced vote. And that outraged me now, and it outrages me now, uh, still, uh, it outraged me then, and it still does now, because... One of the basic functions of a mature democracy is that you don't leave the losers empty-handed. If you basically take a highly polarised debate, win it narrowly and then say, and from now on you are entirely disenfranchised, you losers, you can guarantee you will get a backlash. Rightly so. Because the whole point of a mature democracy is that everybody feels they have a stake, even if they've lost... Um, uh, whatever argument prevails at any one uh, point in time. And here's my point to you. If the pendulum were to swing back to people like me, it's really important we don't repeat the mistakes of the Brexiteers. You have to give people who believe we should leave the European Union and, and are fervent about it, you have to give them something. can't leave them empty-handed in the same way that Theresa May, with all this ghastly citizens of nowhere stuff, uh, left um, particularly the 70% of youngsters who voted to remain entirely empty-handed. And I personally think, and it's one of the things that I discuss in these meetings I have across the European Union, that if the pendulum were to swing uh, back to Britain remaining part of a, the European Union, if we were to have a people's vote on the final deal and it were to be decided that we're going to stay, I think it'd have to be accompanied with a significant change in the operation of the rules around freedom of movement. Because you could argue whether it's legitimate or not. You can argue whether you think it's... I, of course, think freedom is a great thing. But there's absolutely doubt, no doubt in my mind that if you were simply to sort of snap back to the status quo ante and somehow sort of wish away 
this this sort of curious, you know, um, scenic route that we've taken through a referendum and back again. Quite understandably, people will say, "Well, what? Hang on a minute. I mean, you know, that we we feel completely cheated." So, if you want to heal the divisions in the country, I think one of the things, uh, and that's why, would you believe it? There are Remainers who are even archer than I am. Um, and I keep saying that you've got to think now about what you give to the losing side if, 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 if events were to turn back in your direction. I think it's in that freedom of movement area. I personally think that notwithstanding all the rhetoric, uh, not only here but elsewhere, that you know, the freedom of movement is this Old Testament principle chiselled in stone, it's a much more fungible and elastic freedom of the, of the four freedoms underpinning uh, the single market. It's much more caveated, it's much more conditioned, and crucially... It's a really important thing to remember this. There are, the, the, the issue of the, move, the mass movement of people into the European Union and across, our, across the borders of our patchwork quilt continent is a huge issue in one country after mm. the next. It is not beyond the wit of smart politicians to get together with the Germans, the French, even the Hungarians and say, hang on a minute, we've all got an issue here. Whether you agree with it or you disagree with it, our peoples are really unsettled by what's been going on in recent years. Either unsettled from people coming in from you know, the Mediterranean migration crisis, because of intra-EU immigration. In a sense, normal people don't make that distinction. They just kind of feel it's all a bit too swirly and un, you know, poorly administered and so on. So I think it's a huge case to say, why don't we come up with a pan-European approach to the movement of peoples, which includes much tougher measures on the external borders of the EU, but also, in effect, an emergency break on the way which intra-EU immigration works. I mean, I, I've done some work on this, but sorry, a lengthy reply. It's really important, mm. though. If it were to swing, the pendulum were to swing the other way, Remainers should not make the unforgivable mistake that Brexiteers made in seeking to disenfranchise those who they disagree with. Thanks very much, and we could easily uh, keep talking about immigration and all these things. Um, thank you for terrific questions. Sorry I couldn't get everyone in. Nick Clegg, thank you very much indeed.